I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm super excited about our conversation today with Suchi Reddy. It's a great follow-up to our last interview with Dr. Anjan because Suchi is already really interested in how spaces make us feel and neuroaesthetics. But she's coming from the perspective of a designer and an artist who is also really interested in the role that technology plays in all of this. Yes, and she's absolutely fascinating, and her work is incredible. I can't wait for everyone to hear her interview. And you actually connected with Suchi, Jennifer. Tell us how you met her and why you wanted to have her on the pod today. Well, actually, a friend, a mutual friend introduced us, and I got to go to her her office. It was the first time I'd been in an office in such a long time because of COVID, and it was such a beautiful space, and she just made me feel so warm and inviting, and her coworkers and colleagues were so lovely, and I just instantly fell in love with her mission, and I couldn't wait to just have her on the podcast, and that's how we met. It was love, I love at first it. sight. Yes. <laughs> well, and for those of you who don't know, Suchi Reddy is a world-renowned architect, designer, and installation artist who founded her own firm, ReadyMade, in 2002. ReadyMade is the recipient of numerous awards, including the NYC Times Design Award, the AIA Brooklyn Post Queens Award, AIA New York State Excelsior Award, and Interior Designers Best of Year Awards. Now, Suchi has worked on projects with Google, John Hopkins, and other household names in the world like Ai Weiwei, the artist who you may know. So we're super excited to have her on. I know that's a mouthful, isn't it? She has so many. So I know. Many, yeah, so many awards to her name. We dive into all of it with Suchi, how she got started in the design and art worlds, the incredible installation you can see at the Smithsonian right now, and how biophilic design connects us to the human experience. So let's get to our interview with Suchi. Hi, Suchi. We're so happy you're with us today. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Monica. I'm so happy to be here with you both. I know. It's so nice to meet you. I know Jennifer and you guys know each other from a pre-podcast moment. Tell us. I'm curious. How did you guys meet? A mutual friend, correct, Suchi? It was serendipitous in a way where a mutual friend introduced us and we kept trying to get together and it didn't happen. And then all of a sudden we did meet a month or so ago and it was just sparks for me at least immediately and I just said oh my gosh Suchi you're brilliant you're so full of love and light and you have to be a part of the podcast so I'm glad you said yes (laughs) oh my god Jennifer the feeling was mutual it really was one of those conversations that was like how many points of connection could we possibly have, you know, and how is it that we don't know each other? And what was so beautiful, I thought about our conversation is that while we come at design from very different ends of the spectrum, really the compass is pointed in the same place, which is really how can we make a better world and how can we do that with the tools at our disposal and what we know. And it was really so amazing. And I absolutely love that. It's actually what makes me what gives me my joy in life is like really always connecting the dots from all these different fields and ideas, you know? So yeah. yes, it was sparks all the way. 
I felt I was like, okay, do I have to leave? Can I just stay in your office a little bit longer? Because but Monica, you'll understand, like being in New York City, I haven't been to like a ton of meetings. So when Suchi's like, do you want to get together? I assumed immediately it was like out somewhere else and not in an office. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to your office. This is even better. And it was just, your office is so full of everything that you encompass in your business and actually getting to that. So can you give us a little bit about your background? And Monica, and I talked before, but we're so interested in how like, the house you grew up in shaped your design, your whole future in design and architecture and your aesthetics. So can you give us a little bit about your background? Sure. I am trained as an architect and have a practice that's based in New York City, which I've had for the past 20 years, which now begins to encompass or actually has a very strong foothold in architecture, interior design, strategic thinking, strategic design thinking, and large-scale art installations. So I work as an artist, an architect, a designer, and I work between connecting all of those worlds to my other interests, which are the worlds of science and technology. So I became really interested in a fairly new field called neuroaesthetics, which is really a translational field. And what that looks at is how our spaces, our experiences, our everyday atmospheres are affecting our brains and our bodies. And for me as an architect, as an artist, this was so exciting because it all led back to an epiphany that I had growing up in my house in India, which I was lucky enough to grow up in a house that was designed by an architect. It wasn't just made by a builder. And it was a beautiful house. It had like a central courtyard, gardens on four sides. And I was constantly in the presence of nature and the presence of natural things. And I remember at about 10, I had this epiphany. And when you're a kid and you have an epiphany, it was really maybe the first epiphany I remember of my life. And when you have those, you just kind of accept them as the truth, right? You're not questioning anything and you have the innocence and the intuition to really accept what comes to you. And what I had was this extremely strong feeling that my house was shaping me, that it made me different than my friends. I wasn't better. I wasn't worse. I was different because Mm -hmm. of my house. So I knew that the way that my house was, the way that I lived in it, the way that I flowed from inside to outside, that really affected me. And I remember my best friend at the time, because I used to spend a lot of time in her house and the different feeling I would have when I was there. And so it really came from, it wasn't just a, you know, epiphany, a one-time thing that just landed in my head. It had been something that I had been comparing to my experiences in other people's houses and how I felt there and how I felt in my own. And when I first heard about neuroaesthetics, it brought me back to this moment of being a 10-year-old, of really understanding the power of architecture and space and really wanting to be able to know more about that, to explore it. So I became involved in the field and it really is a very interesting field that's like bridging science and design. So the languages of both of those fields are completely different, right? So to bring them together has been the effort of lots of people who are in the field, whether they're neuroscientists, they're psychologists, they're philosophers, they're phenomenologists, neuroscientists, all kinds of people are coming together in this field to really understand how we can understand our world through the lens of our bodies. That's so beautiful and so interesting. And so you've been doing this for 20 years in New York City. Has the term biophilia, has that been with you for 20 years? Is that something that you stumbled upon? Because you haven't said the word at all. Yeah. But it's very much what you're speaking of is a part of that. 
Absolutely. Biophilia, I think I first heard the word, yeah, probably about 20 years ago, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so it has been in the zeitgeist for a long time. And what's been so encouraging about biophilia is that I think it's one of those things, particularly in a healthcare environment, that there's been a lot of research behind. There have been all these studies that prove that patients recover faster when they have Mm -hmm. a view of nature versus when they're looking at a brick wall. That makes sense to all of us. Like we know these things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet <laughs> until we can get science to say it is so, so true, it doesn't cause systemic change and mm-hmm. really cause the funds and the research to go in the place where they should. So more or less, yes. It's so funny because when you grow up in the tropics, you don't think about it. Life is biophilic. Sure. <laughs> you sure. know, you really don't think of it as an external thing. Mm -hmm. Like people used to ask me for years, what do you miss about home? What do you miss about home? And, you know, being an immigrant for the first probably decade or so, you really miss your family. And then you become somewhat acclimated to your country of choice and you start taking on its characteristics. And then people would say, well, what do you miss? And I'd gotten into this pattern of visiting my family and having time with them. And I would always say, I miss the trees. I miss the trees at home. Because they were like people to me. They were all of these, the richness of tropical flora is just such a thing. And my mother, so this is why I started by telling you about my house with the four gardens, because my mother was a big gardener. She uh-huh. had like collections of trees and plants and fruit trees. And we even had cotton trees. And she used to wow. like the silk cotton would come down and then she would like stuff the mattresses with them. It was. Oh, wow. So when I heard the term biophilia, it really explained a relationship that was quite different from the Western world to the non-Western world. Because in some ways, you don't make that distinction. We're quite conscious of the fact that we live on a planet that's green and bigger than us, even in cities, most cities. At least the city that I grew up in is a very, very green city. So when I heard the term biophilia, I was like, very interested in it. And I really thought it had to do first before I did any research on it with animals and Mm -hmm. objects for whatever reason. And then as I dug into it, I realized what it meant. And I was like, that makes the most perfect sense. Isn't that how we're wired? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations... We're going to have all sorts of great farm-to-table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings, and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. 
Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the sixth annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. What's so interesting to me, I'm just thinking about you as a 10-year-old in your house, understanding the distinction between what you grew up in versus your friends. Now, I really understand the work that you're in because it was already innately a part of your life. It's like a part of your DNA of gardens around your house and the inside going like seamlessly to the outside. I mean, I can't imagine how beautiful that experience must have been for you and your entire family in India. Spectacular. I want to see pictures sometime. <laughs> I will show them to you. <laughs> okay, good. In South India, particularly, we have a very, very close relationship in India all over, really. But in South India, also, we have a close relationship with flowers. And most Indians have an yeah. altar in the house, and it's a daily practice to gather flowers and put them together and offer them. And my mother used to do this every morning. So it used to be like my favorite thing wow. to like walk around the garden with her with a basket, picking up things. And we wouldn't pick the flowers off the plant, we would pick up the ones that dropped on the ground. So it was like all of this making garlands out of those, which I was a terrible garland maker, thank God. I had to do that, but I would watch her kind of expertly weaving it. And it was really just such a beautiful ritual that stays with me. And then I'll be very happy to show you those pictures, Jennifer. Okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> well, and I love that you talked about how you had an epiphany as a kid, because I think we don't, well, I'll speak for myself or maybe broadly, but you don't really hear about people talking about that that often, right? And I think, or I wonder if it's because we don't spend enough time in nature that we're sort of disconnected and we don't have the time to slow down and touch the flowers and bring them in and put them in an offering that we're just moving so quickly. But that the times that I've really had that mind shift, and I do think that biophilia is a very common sense idea that once people hear it, they may feel an aha. Mm -hmm. But I do think having those epiphanies and maybe more creative inspiration, when you're just busy, 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 it's very difficult to have those moments. Mm. So that leads me into asking about some of your work, because I want to hear about your architecture and how that practice evolved into more of art installations. So tell us a little bit about that over the past 20 years. One quick thing, though, about children. I think kids are very attuned to nature, even urban kids. Central Park has all of these like wild areas in it. You can go picking blackberries in the park in the way northern ends of it. So Mm -hmm. I think children are naturally curious about that. And wherever we lose that, it's really nice to regain it as an adult, don't you think? Because it's also yeah. all the wonder of the natural world, right? And that's why we watch all these nature shows and you know, yes, um, right? <laughs> do so all true. of these things. Yeah. And probably why gardening has become such yeah. a big thing, like putting your hands back into the dirt, right? It kind yeah. of brings you back to that moment. Indeed. So in terms of my work, what I've been really interested in is bringing the conversation of design and architecture out of what I call the region of style, because I think style tends to be a very socioeconomic trope that people Mm. fall into. And I think that Mm. if we don't discuss style 
in design or architecture, but you can discuss a more authentic response to how your body reacts to Mm -hmm. space, then I think you can bring it back to the space of the body, the conversation. And I like to call it the democratic space of the body. If all of us can relate to that, then from this level, we can all privilege the importance of architecture and design in our worlds. Because one thing that I did, and I still am quite dismayed by, is the lack of interest that people have in design and architecture. Even though they say they're interested, it's growing. It's definitely growing. It's grown in the last 20 years, way more than I expected it to. But I still think it's a rather niche thing and it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be. It's really something that is a force for agency and equity and it should belong to all of us and we should all privilege how our environments look and feel Mm -hmm. and to really come at it from that place. And so we're doing three houses right now. All Mm -hmm. of them are in nature. They're not urban projects, but they are set up so that like when we get to design some things, I set it up so that I can privilege the large view of this tree that becomes the centerpiece of this huge opening of this house. Or we look through the landscape. We create lots of windows into the landscape that are multiple different kinds of landscapes in some places. Like when we're working in California, we get the opportunity to do that. We get the opportunity to think about light in different parts of the country in different ways. So I've been really excited about it, but one of the projects that was rather seminal and kind of bringing this thinking out into the world was an installation that we did that was in collaboration with Google and the Arts and Mind Lab at Hopkins and the furniture company Muto, and it's called A Space for Being. And we did an installation in Milan in 2019. There's a video on YouTube about it if you look up space for being, you can see it, where we set up three different spaces. And I designed three different spaces and three different kind of design languages. Mm -hmm. And they were all the same function. And they had little quiet spaces connecting them. And Google designed a band that measured four different bodily metrics. And we had people sitting in each room for 10 minutes quietly, without talking to each other, without being on their phones, which as you know, is quite a <laughs> So I curated all these books and different things. So one room was based on our cave ancestry. So I made it very earthy. I had an 80 year old cactus in the room, a tapestry that was made by wonderful, wonderful artist, Claudia Youngstra. And she uses the dyes of flowers and the wool came from like goats that she saved from extinction. Literally the room had like yeah. real presence. You know, when objects have real presence, they're not sure. a facsimile or a fake. It's the real thing. And another one was brightly colored and had lighting come in all directions and had pop-up books in it. And the third one was super refined. And I created these artworks of scorched wood in there Mm. so you could feel them and you could smell it. It was a very different kind of space. And then people took up their bands and they had their data reflected to them as this beautiful kind of ring of watercolor where they could see where their body was at ease, where it was excited. And it really showed them that design matters. And you need to take it more seriously than you do. That's all. We weren't keeping anyone's data. We weren't looking at it from that perspective. This was really just to show people that design matters. And I think it was a very far-reaching project, which then led to work on designing a prototypical hospital room, possibly to help children that are recovering from neurological disorders that we have yet to build, but is in the works and will eventually get built. We're also working on a resilience center for hospital staff to, and we have a biophilic space in there where we're trying to, you know, introducing live plants into a hospital environment is also very tricky. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about carefully the challenges of doing that. We're looking forward to launching that at the end of this year. So I'm really excited to see 
how I can explore all of these different avenues in the work continuing forward. But aside from the architecture practice, I became an installation artist probably about, uh, I would say, eight years ago and Mm -hmm. began with a large installation that covered two and a half areas of acres in a park with 7,000 pinwheels that reflected people's wow. thoughts about the park. And it was organized by an agency who was curated. Was in Brooklyn? The Brooklyn yeah. Botanical? Yeah. yeah. It was That's actually beautiful. Prospect Park. Yeah, Prospect. Okay. Yeah. And from there, moved on to a sculpture in Times Square. And currently, I have a sculpture that's in the Smithsonian. It's the centerpiece of an exhibit called Futures. And that exhibit is at the Arts and Industries Building through July 6th. So if anyone's in D.C., please go see it. It's a fabulous exhibit. And that sculpture has to do with technology and humans and emotion. So I've also been really interested, particularly during the pandemic, I think we've come to realize the value of technology. It's the thread that kept us Mm -hmm. together. (laughs) And I won this commission just before the pandemic, and it was about imagining a future with technology. And how would I imagine that? And so I created this sculpture where you go up and you speak a word into this cloud of light points. And I ask people to give me a word for their future. And when they do that, they stop to think. And for me, really, that's the piece. It's all about self-awareness because it's well and good to say we're heading towards dystopia because of technology, but we're really the gatekeeper. We're the people that are either going to let it happen or not. It depends on Mm -hmm. our self-awareness. So it really was to ask people to be thoughtful about how they're engaging with technology. But so the minute people speak a word for their future, they get back what I call a light mandala, like a series of patterns of light Mm. that is reading their voice, their emotion through AI and ML and Mm. reflecting back this pattern. And then in the center, there's a tall totemic piece that weaves all of our light patterns together. So it's a constantly evolving textile of light, let's say, that's weaving all of our ideas of the future together. And it's so beautiful to see people reacting to it, to see how even when they give it a difficult word and it gives them something that looks beautiful, their next word is not so difficult. And to really see the effect of beauty on people, to see the power of agency, to know that when they know that their thoughts are affecting everybody else's, the power of that and the sense mm-hmm. of community that that creates. It's been really, really wonderful. So I'm so humbled and honored to have had this opportunity to create this thing. Yeah. And I'm staring at a picture of it right now. It's amazing. And, and that's um, what you're doing, Monica. I can always tell yeah, when you're you like, tell that I'm like looking <laughs> it up. I get so excited. I know. And um, I, we might be running through DC this summer, so I might have to go see it. But I love what you're saying about the collective, because I think that's so much of what we're missing in society today is we forget that we're all in this together, that this human aspect that We do have agency. And as a group, we can make change. And I think we get so overwhelmed with the issues of the day, which are vast and very important, and some are very tragic, but we can make change together. It's very difficult sometimes to figure out a way to bring people together. So I think art is such a phenomenal way for people to see that, that this is a collective piece. So it's very exciting. In public space, too. Yep. The parks, our squares in our cities, are these are places of gathering and there are places in New York City. We're so used to it. We know where to go when we want mm-hmm. to gather with people. We know we can go here to do this or to here. One of the most beautiful things actually coming out of the pandemic was or early on in the pandemic was being in Washington Square Park, which I live in my studios near 
and watching hundreds and hundreds of violinists play music uh, for, oh. I'm forgetting his name, but the gentleman who was a violinist who suffered police brutality. And it was unbelievable to come together like that, to be able yeah. to express our feelings together and to really understand that just like nature, just like trees talk to each other, we talk to each other all the time. It's all the same system mm-hmm. to remove ourselves from nature and to say like, we don't connect to each other through invisible systems, I think is silly because we know we do it. And we're really not acknowledging the power of that. And I think things like art and architecture can make those invisible things really visible and palpable to people. So for me, that's where the power lies. That's what I want to explore in my work. You mentioned doing this project with Google that sounds like that was in Milan. Was that at the furniture show or was that a yeah. different? Uh-huh. Okay. But then I think you worked on a flagship project for Google in New York. Is that right? I did. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. I did the very first flagship retail store. We opened it last year in June. And as you might imagine, working through a pandemic, also a very tricky thing, but it's also a very anti-technology quote unquote, I'll put that in quotes, <laughs> um, place because you walk in there and it's a very warm wood clad space with a soft floor. You exhale. I don't know if you've been in there, Jennifer. I have not. I need to. It's not about screens everywhere. We even the, Google had this amazing team that dematerialized the screen so that you could look through it and see the objects behind it and really learn about them and really learn how the bigger reaches of technology are. Like really, how do they help? How does it help us? All of these objects and gadgets and shiny things are one thing, but really what is actually the importance of this and how are we living with it? And it also has a space element of wonder, which is really big for me. And so in the middle of the space, because it's a very long linear space, they created kind of a wireframe that kind of is just like a line drawn in space that delineates shapes of rooms. And and we worked with a wonderful furniture designer to make a custom line of furniture that's made out of cork and oh. fully sustainable. The store is actually one of the few large retail projects to have a lead platinum rating, which is really, really important and was very difficult to get. But the company was very committed to making that happen, which was absolutely amazing. And we were so proud to have that be done. What were some of the challenges in order to get the lead platinum? Because you hear about all these class A office towers getting that all the time, but why was it harder for a retail space to get that? I think because in retail, there is also a huge variety of materials that you end up using and your pool of materials. You have to be very strict about the provenance, the way that they're made, the way the glues in the construction materials are. It goes very deep to the heating systems, the cooling systems, everything has to meet certain number of criteria in order to be able to get that rating. So our flooring, for instance, was made completely out of recycled water bottles and the wood is forested and stewarded very, very carefully to be sustainable. The dyes and stains that are used have to be sustainable. So it's on every level, not quite the easiest thing, but it also reflected the company's commitment to that as well. Well, and I know, Jennifer, you had sent me an article that there is a big, I think it's a corporate office building that's being built that is going to be, I don't want to be superlative of it, the most biophilic building in New York, but right? What did you send yeah. me the other day that was? It's in the Financial Times. I'm sure you know, you saw that ready. Google is going to be the most expensive biophilic office space in New York City. It's like a $2 billion, billion building dollars. 
Great. I haven't seen the article yet, but I have talked to some people that, that are making some biophilic spaces within Google. Yeah. Sure. I have a yes. question for you because I was in I was in the Bronx yesterday for Easter because that's where I'm from. I thought about you in our conversation. Are you doing a project with a school or mm-hmm. no? I wasn't sure if you were doing something with, with kids or something in the Bronx or. Oh, yes. I actually I have a grant in collaboration with a friend of mine who's a conceptual artist and an organization that works with refugee kids. We're looking at creating a space to help affect their mental health. So, wow. yeah, we're going to be doing wonderful. that in the Bronx sometime this year. And will that be associated with a school or a healthcare facility? or how Maybe. The- we're still figuring out the parameters of where we can be most effective with the grant. Yeah. I love it. So your company, your architecture firm is called ReadyMade, and you really focus on form follows function. Can you kind of talk (laughs) about that philosophy a little bit? I mean, I think it's definitely something that we believe in, but it can't just be, I mean, I guess it can just be pretty, but it really needs to (laughs) perform if it's going to be just beyond just an art piece, right? Yeah. So actually, my mantra is a take on form follows function. It's actually form follows feeling. And that's what I believe. And that's what I think should be the generator of design about how it makes you feel. And I guess it's a sort of a friend of mine pointed out that's a sort of a secondary loop kind of question because the form actually makes you feel something and then you create a form that follows your feelings. So you know, you sort of go on this <laughs> so you sort of go on this journey. But happy to say that I'm so proud of my studio and all of the hard work we've done over twenty years with all of the people who've worked with me and continue to. But we just released a book, which I'll send to you, Jennifer, and to you, Monica. It's called Form Follows Feeling. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, very, very excited. And it comes out of actually a professorship I had at the University of Illinois, distinguished professorship, where I taught a course that was based on neuroaesthetics to the students. So it has student work in it and my work and our work. And yeah, so it feels like it's a good thing to do, I think, 20 years into doing something. Yeah, yeah. Now I think you need to document and put that punctuation on all the yeah. work that you've done and honor it and then get it out there for people to touch and feel. I mean, like we're big proponents of paper, <laughs> you know, <having laughs> a physical object. You yeah. Know. yeah. And it's also so beautiful. We were so lucky. We had it designed by an amazing designer and it looks amazing and we're just happy, happy to have it there. And it's also a good point to start thinking about where do we go from here? Where do we want to take it next? All right. Well, that's a good, yeah, so that's a good question. question. Where do you, I know. Yeah. So, <laughs> where do you Let us know. We want to know. Going? Well, I'm always going to want to be on an innovative frontier, I think, mm-hmm. for things. So whatever comes next is going to have to be fitting some kind of mold, breaking a barrier of some kind. I started without knowing that I was doing that. I started as a woman, a woman of color, an immigrant, being in a mm-hmm. field like architecture, breaking into a world like art, like doing things that had I thought about them, I might have stopped. But I <laughs> guess I didn't. Yeah. Naivety is of, bliss, right? Naivety is bliss. It sometimes. sort of is. So, I don't yeah. think you could do anything if you really so. knew how hard it was going to be. Mm-mm, you know, you kind of just have to go with the flow. 
and yeah. see what it brings. And yeah, so I'm really excited. We do have some very exciting healthcare projects that we're looking at, some technology projects that we're looking at that are really, really interesting that will provide new ways of interacting with space. So, and I'm really interested in the quality of digital space because I think what's come home to us over the last three years is that we're inhabiting our physical and digital spaces equally. And I don't think we're going to be one or the other as much conversation as there is about the metaverse. I think there is a very rich place that's a blend of both. And I think the emotional qualities of both of those spaces have to be carefully studied. I think it's going to be, it's a huge impact on our mental health, a huge impact on our physical health. And to really think about that. And I wrote a little opinion piece in the New York Times that came out in December thinking about this. And thinking that we need to pay attention to what the qualities of this is. So this physical digital hybrid is something that I'm extremely interested in. Yeah, I think that's such a great point, too, because everyone's rushing and running to this other instead of really taking hold of where we are. Because you always say, I think what you wrote before, like we have such a our bodies and our brains have such a unique response to the place and space. And you kind of tackle those problems of like what could be something that we need to really care for, which is like, oh my gosh, we're human beings that really still need human experiences. And that we have to touch and really tackle those issues here in the present versus going again further into this metaverse and running towards it and not tackling the issues at at hand right now. Yeah. And we bring that attitude to everything, whether we're doing interiors for a client, you know, which is maybe the most intimate place where we explore these ideas of connection and how to make someone feel at home and how to make someone feel serene, how to make someone know that they are in a space that's made for them, which is also super, super important to feel that a space is made for you. I think at any level, whether it's public housing or otherwise, if you feel that it's made for you, if that feeling can come across, then you have power there. It builds you in a way that's important. So to really just think about whether it's interiors or it's architecture or it's art or it's just strategic thinking, I always want to be trying to bring all of these points full circle together so that we can actually be looking at a more holistic way of being. Because I just, it's silly to think that, I mean, we are holistic beings. We really are. We have so many complex systems in us that are running all together in this like amazing way. And why would our world not run that way? It doesn't seem to make sense that we make this divide. So just anything that gets me closer to that is what I'm going to want to be working on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that is wonderful. And you have a very positive feeling towards technology. Jennifer and I were talking earlier, we as a society can tend to have a very negative and there's definitely negatives and I have two teen boys and they're on a lot of that stuff quite a bit. But the flip side is they build really interesting things. One is like taught himself how to code and do VR and build portals, which I'm not even sure what that is. (laughs) And that's really phenomenal, right? That provided an outlet. And so finding that balance, I really like what you said about the physical and the digital hybrid and really finding the best of both and really highlighting those. One of the things that I really liked, I think it was a W Magazine article on you, and you talked about the architect of serenity, or maybe that was the title of it they called you, which I really liked. How did you feel about, did you like that 
I think that everything that we're talking about has a very calming, serene feeling. You're bringing nature into these buildings. Was that something that you have always thought about? Serenity in your work? Yeah, actually, yes. And, you know, it's funny because when you're an architect, the first or designer, the first question is, they'll say, what do you do? And you tell them, you say, oh, do you do houses? Do you do that? You know, people always want to draw a box around you quickly mm-hmm. so always. they can know it. And it's a very smart branding marketing strategy. Sure. Of course, one that I haven't been smart enough to employ, but I want to do <laughs> I, something I differently every time, yeah. <laughs> you know. So then the next thing is like, what's your style? And again, I don't like that categorization because I feel like we're such individual people and the design response always has to be individual. So I ended up saying I'm a serenist. I'm a modernist, but I'm a serenist. So whatever serene for you, if that mm-hmm. means that you need to be surrounded by 19th century paintings, 17th century paintings, that's what it has to be. Right. Sure. And they would have to be in the right combination and the right balance to everything else in order to make that work. But whatever it is, that's what I want you to feel because that's what home should feel. Which I like that because we do as a people, we want to box everybody up and mm-hmm. say, well, oh, that's how I understand you. And if I can understand you, I'm not scared of you. I get it. I now right. I can relate to you instead of this more. I've always loved Steve Martin for all of his. He's not one thing. You know, he, yeah. he's not a comedian. He's not an actor. Right. He's a singer. He plays the banjo. He wrote a play. Like there's something really wonderful about that, that he just continued pushing boundaries. And I just think that's what life's about is having those different experiences. And I love that you've pushed yourself into these art installations and collabs. The creative side is so beautiful. It mm-hmm. is. And it's really how creativity works. You know, you could, yeah. at least for me, I don't know how it works, but, but I think it works like this for all everyone. <laughs> <laughs> kind of in a circle. And you yeah. can why not? Yeah. any yeah. point in the circle to any other point. It's not a linear trajectory. So that's yeah, that's why I don't like to put boxes around anything or around people either. We are always free to express. I'm so glad you say that because you said, Monica, when you both said just, it's so true. We always want to just put people and shove people in boxes forever. And we are so very, you know, I think as also as an entrepreneur, a uh, lifelong entrepreneur, I feel like I'm so interested in so many different things. Mm-hmm. So how do people, they can't put me in a box. They can't put you in a box. They have to continue to let you like ebb and flow into the spaces that you're in, whatever shape that might take right now. I think that's so beautiful. And you create the spaces to let people ebb and flow. And that's the beauty of what you do is so very special. Thank you. And, you know, it just requires finding the people who have the vision to want you to think outside the box or the kinds of people that I really love working with. Yeah. So besides some of these homes that you're in the process of building, it sounds like around the country, is there another large scale installation like the Smithsonian piece that's coming up? I'm currently working on a sculpture that's going to be up in Canada next year. I just came from there, actually. So it's really interesting. It's about being an immigrant, about coming out of the ground, returning to your roots. So wow. that's next on the horizon. And what city is that going to be in? That's going to be in the city of Surrey, which is Surrey. just outside of Vancouver, Canada. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, how else can we support you? I know we're kind of running out of time. So what are you doing or what can we do to support you or find you online or let us know? 
Well, the easiest way to keep up with what's going on in the studio is to follow us on Instagram. And it's at ReadyMade Design, R-E-D-D-Y-M-A-D-E Design. And that usually gives you the flavor of everything that's going on and things that are coming up and places that I'm seeing. But thank you so much for having me on here and for supporting me to get the voice out there and to really reach people who have vision and want to achieve something that makes a difference in the world is really where I want to be. So thank you for connecting me to those people. Well, Suji, I hope to meet you in person. I'll have to come find you when I'm in New York next. Yes. This summer, Jen, I'm coming up. Yes. We'll all get together. That'd be really, really fun. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. And Suji, thank you for your work. And thank you for taking the time to do this because your work is so about, like what we talk about a lot is hope. And while the world seems very crazy right now or upended, there's such huge opportunity and your work is all about hope and beauty. So thank you for sharing that with all of us. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate you having me on here. Such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That was great, Jennifer. I'm really intrigued by the way that ReadyMade as a firm approaches all these different areas of design without being boxed into a specific niche. She does architecture, design, art, and all of these things overlap and work together. Isn't it so cool? Well, I love that she said towards the end of our conversation about being a serenist and how that's the common thread between all the different projects, creating a sense of calm and well-being and connection to our fellow man. That's more important now than ever before, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you say that? (laughs) I don't know. What am I saying? (laughs) That ties in really well with her approach to technology. You know, I can be guilty of viewing technology in maybe a one-sided negative way, depending on what it is. But that definitely exists sometimes. But Suchi really points out that we rely on technology to connect during COVID and that we have agency over the role that technology plays in our lives and society. So I think we have a ways to go to really harness it in a popular way, or I should say a optimistic way. But her outlook is really helping me keep things in perspective. Yeah, she also uses tech in her work in a really interesting way. Anyone listening who will be in D.C. before July 6th should absolutely go see me plus you in the Smithsonian if you have a chance. I love the idea of using AI to amalgamate all these individual feelings about the future. What could our shared future look like if we knew how our outlook would affect everyone? That's right. And the project she did with Google and Venice with the tech and the mm-hmm. body metrics to really demonstrate how design affects how we feel. I love thinking about what our world, like you're saying, could look like if the idea of form follows feeling was adopted more widely. Well, I can't wait to see what Suchi does next, especially her upcoming projects in the healthcare space. We will absolutely keep an eye out for those and keep our listeners updated on social media. So if you're interested in learning more about Suji's work, we've got some great resources in our show notes. And you can also follow ReadyMade on Instagram. That's at ReadyMade Design. And that's with a Y. Okay. I guess we'll talk in a few weeks, Jen. All right, Monica. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. 